let's jump in to Genesis. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 46. And so we spent a lot of time uh, talking about Joseph and Jacob and what's going on in Egypt with these guys. Uh, I look back, and so almost half of the book of Genesis, 23 of the 50 chapters, is about Jacob and Joseph. Uh, there's, so there's a lot going on with that. If you're new with us, if this is your first time here, we do expository preaching where we take a book of the Bible and we walk through it. Uh, and so we say that sinful preaching is boring, and so we try to not... Uh, wait, let me flip that around. Boring preaching is sinful, both works, but uh, we, we try to not make it boring. Uh, and so we're walking through that. We're getting to the end, really, of Genesis. We've got just a few more chapters left. So just a quick recap. I'm not going to belabor too long on what's gone on in the past, but we, we're talking a lot about Joseph and his dad, Jacob. So if you were, remember, Jacob is Abraham's grandson, which makes Joseph the great-grandson of Abraham. Abe was the one who God chose to uh, be his. He called him out, and he was going to make a nation out of Abraham. And he said he would make him a great nation and that his family would bless the world and all of the world would be blessed through him. You remember, Abraham had Isaac. And there's a whole deal with Abraham going to sacrifice Isaac, but God provided a way for him. Isaac had Jacob and Esau. That was his two boys. Uh, Jacob was a real piece of work. He was born holding on to Esau's heel. Um, and if you remember, he tricked his brother Esau into giving him his birthright over what I could imagine was some pretty killer stew. Uh, and, then, and then Jacob and his mom uh, put on sheepskin and tricked his dad, his blind old dad, into thinking he was Esau. And so uh, uh, he, Isaac gave Jacob the blessing instead of Esau. And so the promises of God to be a great nation would actually go through Jacob instead of Esau, who was the firstborn. Uh, but it was no easy road for Jacob. Jacob was, um, he went off to marry Rachel, if you remember that whole story. Uh, and Rachel's dad, Laban, said, all right, if you work for me for seven years, you can marry Rachel. But what he did is he snuck old weak-eyed Leah in there that night. And so Jacob wakes up and there's old fugly Leah, like, he's jumping over there. And so he had to work another seven years for the hot sister, Rachel. And so all that happens, he marries Rachel, but he's got to bring Leah with him. And so he does some, like, shepherding voodoo. He masses a big flock. He takes off with his wives and kids. And at one point during the trip, he wrestles with God. You remember a guy drops the bow from the top rope, hurts his hip, and so he's limping around. Uh, but at that same time is when God changed his name to Israel. And so he would be the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob has a bunch of kids with his wives and servants. One of Jacob's boys, Joseph, grows up to be a real piece of work. He's a cocky little 17-year-old. He has dreams where he's, he, people are bowing down to him. So he tells his family about these dreams. And the family's like, so we're going to be bowing down to you. It didn't go very well with his brothers. You remember the whole coat he had? His dad gave him a fancy coat. So he's strutting around with his coat, telling him that he's going to kind of be in charge over there one day. Apparently, he's a little bit of a tattletale as well. So what do his brothers do? They decide they should kill him like a bunch of rational fellas. Reuben steps in. Reuben's the oldest. He says, all right, let's not kill him. Let's sell him. So they sell him to a bunch of Ishmaelites who then sold him to Potiphar. And if you remember, uh, one of Potiphar, he became one of Potiphar's servants. Potiphar's wife had a thing for Joseph. So he kind of gives her the Heisman. Like, no, no, quit it. She's coming on to him pretty strong. So she gets mad because he declined her advances, gets him thrown in jail. So in jail, he successfully interprets two dreams for two guys. The dreams come true. They get out of prison. Well, one of them dies. The other one gets out of prison. Years later, uh, Pharaoh has a dream, and this dude's like, you know what? I remember a guy in prison that interpreted these dreams for me. You should go talk to him. Joseph's still in prison. 
Pharaoh goes and grabs Joseph out of prison and says, here's these dreams I've had. Joseph successfully interprets the dreams for Pharaoh. So Pharaoh's like, you know what? I'm going to make you second in command. So Joseph rises to power in Egypt as second in command to Pharaoh. This is about 22 years of time that has come along through this. And so there's a bad famine in the land. Joseph's brothers are like, we need some food. Let's go to Egypt. Let's get some food. Who they run into? Joseph. So Joseph realizes who they are. They don't know who he is. So he really decides to jack with them. He's like interrogating them, accuses them of being spies. He hides stuff in their bags uh, to make it look like they stole it. Finally, Joseph's emotions get the best of him. He reveals his identity. And that's what Scott covered last week. And then the brothers head back to tell Jacob that his son's alive. All right. Y'all got all that? I didn't write any of that down, memorize the whole thing. That's not, hey, let me pray for us and we're going to jump right in. Father God, thank you. Thank you for these stories, God, that are true. Father, thank you that these all lead to one glorious conclusion in Christ Jesus, that this whole book is about the love that you have for us. Father, speak to us today. Speak through me. God, use your um, fallible, uh, sinful servant uh, just to proclaim the glory and the goodness of God to us. We love you, praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Genesis 46. Let's jump in. So Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I'll make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So let's stop right there. So here we are. Jacob has been told that his son's alive. And so remember, he he didn't believe it at first when when his sons came and said, Dad, your your boy's alive. We saw him Uh, back in 45. it, It said he didn't believe him. It said his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. You know, if you recall everything that's happened, Jacob's kids had really kind of put him through the ringer. And so he was like, I just don't believe you guys. You're a bunch of clowns. And Jacob was pretty much a miserable old man. Um, ever since the point of losing Joseph, he'd just been miserable. He never could get over Joseph's, what he thought, death. It, virtually all of Jacob's words after Joseph was gone and sold off were about death. He was, he was pretty miserable, and, and rightly so. Joseph was by far his favorite. We've talked about that a lot, but I mean, like, by lo- uh, a lot his favorite. You know, we, we talk about the coat. We know the whole story of, like, dad giving him gifts. But one of, the, one of my favorite examples of this is hiding back in chapter 33. This was before Joseph was sold off. We covered this. Scott preached to this. But uh, Jacob meets his older brother Esau again. After he had kind of screwed him out of the inheritance and all of that, he meets his, his brother Esau again. But Jacob was worried that Esau was going to be mad at him, and, and rightly so. Uh, so what he does is, is Jacob lines up his family in order of least favorite to favorite. And so he puts fugly Leah in the front with all the servants and the kids that he doesn't like as much. And then hot Rachel and her boys are in the very back. So if this thing goes south, it's going to be the ugly ones in the front, apparently. And so I, it, it's just weird to me. Like, so baby Jacob's like, all right, hey guys, if this thing goes south, I need you all to kind of form a human shield around Joseph so nothing happens to my favorite. And, you know, the brothers are like, this is really weird, Dad. We kind of see what's happening here. Uh, I, I guess the, the times and customs were just a lot different back then. 
How many people here with more than two kids have had to count Christmas presents to make sure you don't accidentally give one too many? Yeah, we've had to do it. You're like measuring. You're like, oh, shoot, this one's a quarter inch bigger. This kid's going to lose his mind because this present's smaller. Like, that's kind of how it is now. No, not back then. They're lining kids up in order who he wants to die first. I just, it, it's beyond me, but I, I would imagine these brothers really struggled with how much uh, this dad, how much Jacob liked Joseph compared to them. Back in chapter 42 is another example of when, when Simeon, when they leave Simeon with Joseph and they go back to, uh, back to their dad uh, to get Benjamin, the dad, Jacob's like, you've bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more because you left him down there. Now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Another spot, he says, my son won't go down with you for his brother is dead and he is the only one I have left. And you sure the brothers are like, we're kind of left here too. You know, you've got us as well. If harm, if any harm should happen to him, you will bring my gray hairs down to sorrow to Sheol. Life, I imagine, was pretty love, rough living with Jacob these, all these years, especially if you're not one of his favorites. So imagine for 22 years thinking your kid's dead, and then all of a sudden you find out your son is alive, this son who you love so much is alive. And so after finding all of that out, Jacob decides to go down to Egypt What's the first thing Jacob does when he goes down, or when he finds out that his son's alive? Let's look at this. It says, Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba. This is after he left. He comes to Beersheba and he offered sacrifices to God, his father. What's the first thing he did? He finds out, he packs up and he goes and he worships. He offers sacrifices to God. His hope had been restored. He remembered God's promise and he, his response out of that wasn't finally Thank goodness, God, you were really letting me down there. It was worship. He worshiped the Lord there in Beersheba. He, he offered sacrifices to him. In Beersheba, there's a long history throughout this family in Beersheba. That's where Abraham had offered up Isaac as a sacrifice. And so this, this location wasn't lost on him, what all had happened. He could start to see this story coming back together that he had been told his whole life. His life had turned around and he, had, he was praising God for it. And then next, he's, God speaks to Jacob in a vision of the night. He's reminding Jacob. He's like, hey, Jake, I just want to remind you, bro. I got you. I still got you. Here's what it says uh, in verse 2. It said, and God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And God's word for Jacob in this was, do not fear. Jacob, do not fear. And he goes on to give him four reasons not to fear. I think this is pretty cool. The first one in verse 3, he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. Do not fear. The first reason was he's going to make him into a great nation. So you remember what I said a minute ago when I was rattling through the history here? This was a promise that he had made to Abraham generations before. He said, I will make you into a great nation. And this was carried on through Jacob, and Jacob knew this. God was reminding him of the, the whole goal in this was that you will become a great nation. But it won't be in the land of promise where you just left. It's going to be in, Israel, uh, in Egypt, pagan Egypt, along the Nile. Do not fear. The next thing he says is, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. I'll make you into a great nation, and I myself will go down with you to Egypt. God originally had showed him this. Y'all remember the story in, in, back in chapter 28 of Jacob and the ladder, the dream he had in the ladder, and the angels were ascending and descending along the ladder. What God told him was, in that, uh, in, in that vision he had, he said, I am with you, and I will go, 
and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I, I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So Jacob's a little bit, all right, I hear what you're telling me, God, but you're sending me to Egypt. Like, we never talked about this. We never talked about going to Egypt, but God is reminding him, like, I'm going to be with you. Wherever you go, I will be with you. And I think what God was saying is, my promises, my power, my love is not bound by territories that we have set, that man has set. God is not bound by our boundaries and our territories and our ideas of him. He wasn't then, and he's not now. Next, he said, I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. So it was likely that Jacob wasn't really making this connection, what God was saying, I will bring you up again, because what God was doing is he was reiterating a promise that he had made to Abraham. There's a lot of little dots and lines and connections here that's going on. Back in, uh, in Genesis chapter 15, uh, God had put Abraham into a deep sleep. And I, I don't know if you remember this when we preached through it. This was actually the last time I preached was this chapter. Um, God had put Abraham into a deep sleep, and he, he divided two animals. He got animals, and, and he cut them in half, literally cut them in half. And he, had, uh, he put Abraham in a deep sleep, and this is what he said. He said, then the Lord said to Abram, go, or know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. God was reminding him. He wasn't just saying, he wasn't just saying you're going to Egypt. He was saying, I'm going to be with you, and then I will bring you back up again. This moment, just it wasn't lost on Jacob. It, his life was turning around, uh, and he could, he, he, God was starting to unravel these, these pieces, putting this puzzle together that uh, was, was clarifying this, uh, this idea and the promises that God had for Jacob, he was clarifying those for him. He was saying, I'm going with you, and I'll be there with you the whole time. I'm not going to just send you down there and leave you. I'll be down there with you the whole time, and I will bring you back up again, just as I promised I would to your grandfather. And then the last thing he said in verse 4, he said, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. I will bring you back up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Not only will I go with you, not only will I bring you back again, but you're going to die in peace. Jacob had always lamenting the fact that he's going to die an old man away from his son that he loved so much. God was restoring all this to him. He was reminding him that Jacob will die in peace after all. His beloved Joseph will be by his side to the end. So basically what God was doing is he was reassuring Jacob of everything he had promised him. Jacob packed up and he took off. And then we pick up in, in, in verse 5 here. And so... Uh, I'll read on through verse 26, so, so bear with me. We've got a few names to go through. Then Jacob set out for Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones and their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock, their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan. And they came into Egypt, Jacob and all of his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now, these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, we'll go with that, Zohar, and Shal, the, sons of a, the son of a Canaanite woman. I guess Shal and the Canaanite woman, I don't know what all happened there, but felt like we needed to point that out. Son of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merazi. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan, Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The son of Issachar, 
Tola, Puva, Yab, and Shimron, the sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and Padamaran, together with his daughter, Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haggai, Shunai, Esben, Eri, Erodi, and Areli, the sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Bariah, with Sarah, their sister, and the sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malchiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laman gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons, the sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph, and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the wife of On, bore to him, and the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Muppim, Huppin, and Ard. That's my favorite. It sounds like a kid's fairy tale. Muppim, Huppin, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all, the son of Dan, Husham, the son of Naphtali, Jazeel, I'm getting winded, Guni, Jezer, and Shilam. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons, wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Goodness, that is a lot. So just a quick point on all of these numbers and all these people. It said the, the, all the persons who came into Egypt were 70. So scholars lean to 70 being kind of a typology here, not an exact number, because if you try to count actually everyone who's alive, there's 65 people, but then you have to add in Dinah, who wasn't listed. Exodus lists 70 people, but it doesn't count Jacob, but Deuteronomy does. And so if there are any accountants in here trying to like tick and tie this mouth out, you're losing your mind. So just kind of everything I read, it said 70 is just kind of meant to be everybody. That just means it was everybody. So here they go, all of them. Packed them up, all of them. You can imagine this giant group of people and their livestock traveling through the uh, famine-parched desert, abandoning the land that was promised to their fathers, Abraham and Isaac. That's a pretty big step of faith for Jacob to just pack everything up and say, you know what, we're going to do it. We're going to go. My son's there. Uh, They're promising food and safety for us. And so he had faith to transport his entire family, kids, grandkids, great-grandkids, into Egypt. Faith to entrust his drought-stricken family to Egypt, to this pagan country. Faith to abandon the land of promise that had been promised to his family and leave it to the Canaanites. Other than traveling back to bury Jacob, no child of the promise would return until the, after the Exodus 400 years later. We've got some really interesting phrasing here. Uh, into Egypt. Where else, think with me here, where else in Genesis did a whole family leave their home and go into a place for protection and safety? Think through all the way back to almost the beginning. Where else did a whole family pack up everything and leave and go into a place for protection and safety? The ark. Think about that. Noah. Is that what you said, Cassie? Nice work. I thought I heard that. The parallels aren't coincidental here. And the, the use of the word into Egypt parallels the way into the ark was talked about. Twice in verse 5 through 7, it said, 
the whole family went into Egypt. Twice in verse 6, or I mean in chapter 6 of Genesis, it says Noah and his family and the animals went into the ark. And so Egypt here is a parallel to the ark uh, that the author intended. Egypt, in this sense, is an ark of protection for Jacob and his family. They went into this ark of protection that God essentially provided for them through Joseph, through his son. Egypt of all places. I mean, if you think of Egyptians, you think of like the little cat statues and all. I mean, they worshiped all kinds of things. It was a, clearly a pagan country. Jacob knew this, but yet this was where God was sending him for protection and safety. This pagan country. And what we've learned through this and through all of Scripture is that God always provides a way of deliverance for his people. It may not look like the way we think, but he always provides a way of uh, deliverance for them. Not just in Genesis, but all through Scripture. Continuing on in verse 28, it says, He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks with their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Jacob and his family make it to Goshen. Joseph gets up from where he is in Egypt and goes and meets them there. Imagine the the homecoming. Imagine seeing your son that you thought was dead for 20 plus years. Imagine seeing your dad who you haven't seen in 22 years, knowing just the agony that he's been under for for decades. I just couldn't imagine what it was like. Like You see the the shows and the movies of people like, you know, just running to each other and hugging. I'm sure that's what it is. And it actually says they hugged and they cried. And the word it uses for a good while. I like that. It's just, they cried for, he cried for a good while. I mean, I imagine it was pretty unbelievable to see. Even the brothers who hated Joseph probably couldn't help but see, all right, this is pretty cool. It's pretty cool what God's doing here. Ha ha, see what you did, God. And then Joseph uses diplomatic skills and the, gills of administ- the skills of administration that obviously God had given him uh, to position his family in the rich pasture land of Goshen. Goshen was outside of where Pharaoh was a little bit. So what would become Israel essentially were able to live a somewhat isolated life away from the Egyptian in Goshen, uh, from the Egyptians, and they were still able to enjoy the protections that Joseph secured for them. So they were still able to have food and have these rich pasture lands in the middle of this famine that was going on. It's just really, I don't know for you, but for me it's been neat to see just the way God has just been weaving this story together uh, throughout this this whole time. I'm sure it was amazing for them to see just having uh, lived it. So that's it. What, what, what does that mean for us? Like, it's, it's, it's always a struggle for me when I read the Old Testament sometimes to say, that's a pretty cool story. Uh, what does it have to do with us 2,000, 3,000 years later, essentially? So I think there's a few things from this story that, that we can really um, pull that apply to us that I think Scripture is really pointing to. I think the first thing is kind of been what I would call the, the theme of this entire story through Genesis is that God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. What he had promised Abraham, 
uh, what he pr- promised Abraham's descendants, that they would become a great nation, that all the world would be blessed through them. God kept that promise. God keeps his promises. And do you think that there was doubt involved? Do you think Jacob ever doubted this? Of course he did. you think Abraham doubted God's promises when he was going to go sacrifice his son? Like, yes, of course. These were sinful humans. Of course they doubted God. Jacob's favorite son is dead. A famine's here. We're doomed. We're out of food. Now we've got to move to Egypt, which is just full of these sinful, crazy idolaters. But through the midst of all this, God was still working. And he said he would do exactly what he promised he would do. Or he did that. He did what he said he would do. He promised it to him. And I think that's really good news for us if we look through this. Because the faithfulness of God to keep his promises isn't dependent on our faith to believe. The faithfulness of God to keep his promises isn't dependent on our faith to believe in them. That's good. I don't know about you. That's good news for me because I doubt a lot. Uh, The other way I think we could say that is our doubt doesn't negate God's promises. The promises in Scripture aren't dependent on our faith to believe in them. That gives me a lot of hope. God is still at work in the midst of your doubt and your lack of faith. That's good news. Praise God for that. I think the second thing from this that, uh, at least for me, has been helpful is is to really focus on the fact that Jacob and Joseph aren't the heroes. Scott hit on this some last week. Um, You know, the easy thing for us would be to say, you know what, Jacob's faith is what led them to salvation in Egypt. Jacob had faith to get his family up and go, and we just need to have faith like Jacob did. Uh, But is that really true? Is Is that really what was happening here? I think God pretty much dragged Jacob and his family to Egypt. I mean, remember, God had to speak to him in a vision. Don't fear. Don't fear. I've got you. I've got you. Don't fear. There was a famine in the law. I mean, what other choice did they have? They had to go to get food. You know, one danger in in making moralistic heroes from the stories in the Bible is that we then try to apply those to our life. So, for for example, we could say everything worked out for Jacob because he trusted God. Therefore, if we trust God, everything will work out just like we hope. Refuge, if, if anybody knows that this isn't true, it's this church. Matt Chandler uh, says this often. He says, we're, we're all one phone call away from our lives changing forever. And I know many of you in here have gotten those phone calls. So many of, so many of us have gotten those calls. If I get a call from Pastor Scott after 10 o'clock, it usually means something bad has happened. I'm pretty sure Heath won't even answer the phone when Blake calls him anymore. And I don't blame him. I mean, how many of those calls have we gotten? Jacob isn't meant to be our example in this story. And I don't think we can emphasize this enough. All of these stories in Genesis, all of these stories that we're talking through are part of an overall story that tell the story of one hero. There's one hero in this story. God's whole plan to create a nation for himself, to call these people out from the middle of these pagan cultures, all of this was to bless them through the person and work of Christ Jesus. The Jesus Storybook Bible uh, says this. It says, no, the Bible isn't a book of stories or rules or of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero, hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, has thrown everything to rescue the ones he loves. 
This whole saga of Joseph um, being sold and rising to power is just one of the chapters in this book of the hero that Jesus turns out to be for us. The book of God's redemptive plan for mankind. And you can follow this scarlet thread all the way from the promises to Abraham to Jesus. One of the kids that's traveling with Jacob, his name's uh, Judah. And through Judah would come Jesus. Jesus was born through the line of Judah. Look at Matthew 1. It gives you the entire lineage all the way from Abraham to Jesus. That's what this story is about. This scarlet thread runs all through these dramas that we're teaching through in Genesis, but it all points to one person, and that's Jesus, who is the hero of this story. So if you came here today to get a motivational pick-me-up, maybe you're looking for five easy ways to get out of debt or to live your best life now or five steps to a better marriage, um, you're probably going to have a big letdown today. My one job today is to tell you that your hope is found in none other than Christ Jesus. That's my one job today. It's all about Jesus. And I think that's another thing we can get through this story. God's plan for rescue, even Jacob and his family in the Old Testament, is ultimately found in Jesus. Your plan for rescue is found in Jesus. There is no hope outside of him. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Just as Noah and his family was, re- was rescued by the ark, just as Jacob and his family found safety in the ark of Egypt, Jesus is our ark of salvation, our ark of safety and rescue. A friend of mine shared a video with me this week of a Scottish uh, preacher named Alistair Begg, and he talks in such an awesome way. I'm not going to do this story justice, but he, he talks about uh, preaching the gospel to ourselves and, and how we tend to take our focus off of Jesus and make our salvation about ourselves. Um, he said we tend to think of our salvation in the first person, and he uses the evangelism explosion question that you may have heard. If you were to die today, what would you say when asked, why should I let you in? We tend to make it about us. We say, well, I had faith to believe. I believe because I had faith. And the only proper answer is in the third person, because he, because Jesus, because he. And he, he goes on to say, think about the thief on the cross. Y'all remember that story? Uh, there was two thieves on either side of Jesus. Jesus was in the middle, and there were thieves on either side. And one of them was like, uh, hey, Jesus, save yourself and save us. Get yourself down. The thief on the other side was like, hey, cool it, bro. We deserve to be here. He doesn't. This is in Luke 23. Uh, Jesus said this. He said, uh, or the thief said this to Jesus. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This thief had never been to church, never studied the Bible, never been to Bible study. He didn't know anything about how to join a church, church membership. He wasn't plugged in serving. He didn't work on our coffee team. Nothing. Nothing about his life had been about Jesus until up until that moment. So imagine when this guy shows up in heaven, comes in and they're like, hey, what you doing here? He's like, I'm not really sure. The angel's like, uh, how did you get here? And he's like, ah. so the angel goes and gets a supervisor and the supervisor comes up. He's like, all right, I got a few questions we need to ask you here. He's like, what, what are you doing here? So the guy's like, I, I, I don't know. He's like, all right. So you understand about the justification of, 
uh, faith, right? Salvation through faith. And God's like, no, I've never heard of it. It's like, all right, what about uh, the doctrine of Scripture? And he's like, I'm not really familiar with Scripture. He's like, what, what, are you, what are you doing here? On what basis should you be here? And he simply says, the guy on the middle cross said I could be here. Yeah, I love that story. It's one of those that's like, oh, man, how often do we miss it? We make it about ourselves. This thief on the cross, had, he had nothing to do with getting there other than saying, Jesus, remember me. And that was all it took. Jesus was his only answer. The guy on the middle cross, that's our only answer. Jesus said we could come. We must keep our eyes on the cross and the work Jesus did on our behalf, church. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I don't know about you, but that's a weight off my shoulders. In this culture of, you just need to try harder, that's not what our faith is about. Our faith is about the one who did it on our behalf. On our behalf. Look, if you've never trusted Jesus, if you come here today and um, this is new to you, or you're just not believing, trust, repent and believe that his work for you is sufficient. He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need our help. His work for us is sufficient. But for those of us here who are already in Christ Jesus, I just want to remind you that his work for us is all we have. We're not going to show up one day with all the list of things that we've done for God and say, I really, I really did some pretty awesome work for you. Our, our one answer when we get there is, the guy on the middle cross said I could be here. And our Christian life is just a response to that. It's all about Jesus. Let me pray for us.